I think there's a little bit of romanticism in science, though, I think. I find that the dreamers are usually the ones that make it. Practical work, like conducting experiments and gathering data, might be central to a scientist's job. But there is also room for dreams and imagination, which can help us find the gaps in our knowledge and dare to ask unexpected questions. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard Ardem Pataputian, the 2021 Physiology or Medicine Laureate, who was recognised together with David Julius for their discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch. Pataputian is an investigator for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and Professor of Neuroscience at Scripps Research in San Diego. He was born in Beirut in 1967 and grew up in Lebanon during the Civil War. At 18, he left for the US after the terrifying experience of being interrogated by militiamen on his way home from a party. It was a very scary time for me. And when they finally released me that day, I came home and I said, that's it, I'm out of here. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. Adam and Ardem discuss the importance of learning from experience and from failure. But first, they revisit a photo, snapped just after their first conversation, minutes after the laureate received the news of the prize. He and his teenage son Luca are sitting up in bed, still in their pyjamas, watching the announcement on a laptop. In the picture... Luca's hand rests on his father's shoulder. It struck me as a real juxtaposition between the lovely personal moment of being phoned at this ridiculous hour in the morning to be told that you've been awarded the prize and sharing that with your family, and the kind of public onslaught that begins immediately. How was it then, and how has it been over the last few months? Yes, I'm uh, very fond of that photograph. So thank you for asking for a selfie because <laughs> we wouldn't have thought about doing that. And as in most cases of uh, photography, I think it, in, the, in the moment, photographs are the one that end up being the most cherished in a way. And and this was really, really special because, um, again, as you, as you say, it was a huge shock to receive that. As you can see, we're we're not dressed up. We're we're in bed, and uh, you know, being the father of a seventeen-year-old teenage is an interesting years, and I, I don't experience too much of that. Uh, a bit of admiration in his eyes as he's touching my shoulder, and so I, <laughs> so I really really appreciate that moment, and of course, the whole fact that I study the sense of touch, and and that's the main point of it. So I'm, I'm very grateful to Nancy, my wife, for taking that photo as well as, um, again, it's it's a, another side story of it is, of course, during normal years, when the Nobel is announced, I hear that many, you know, cars, trucks, media come at your front door, they all come into your house. And none of that was happening still because of covid and so everything was remote. My press conference was remote. And um, this picture kind of actually became the, 
the face of my communication with the with the rest of the world. It was tweeted by uh, the, the Nobel Prize website, and and I amplified it. And it just uh, this is kind of how the news traveled. So it's very apt for for the COVID years as well. So you asked how it has been then and now. It's been a few months now, and um, it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, all of us in science kind of know that Nobel Prize is a big deal, <laughs> but I really didn't anticipate it to be this big a deal. So I'm kind of still getting used to the idea. Nancy, my wife, and I have said this multiple times that even months later, it still doesn't seem real. And the attention you get from not just science, but scientists and lay people around the world is just truly amazing. Inspiring stories of, you know, kindergartners, elementary school kids writing to you. To, in my case, since this was the first Nobel Prize given to anyone of Armenian origin, as well as someone who was born and raised in Lebanon, um, again, at first. And so these communities celebrated with me from afar and I think for that reason has been special. One of the things you don't realize is that, you know, as a scientist, you are mainly concerned with experiments, results, funding, and papers. That's what you focus on. And all of a sudden you're, you're put in this pedestal in a way where I'm not exaggerating when I said, yes, I have maybe an interesting immigrant story, but I'm not overstating it when I say, I never thought of this as special. It's me, I know it, I live it. And just seeing it through other people's eyes that, oh, you've immigrated, you know, as an 18-year-old fleeing war and made it, like seeing it through other people's eyes that this is special, like makes you pause and say, you know, that was kind of interesting that happened. And it's something I should emphasize. It's a story of hope for sure. And I, I want to talk about it. But I just wanted to focus a little bit on this sort of multiple ownership aspect. <laughs> For your average Nobel laureate, if there is such a thing, they're of course owned by the community of the university where they work and all of that. So you have that with UCLA and the other places you've been working. But then, as you say, you also have Lebanese heritage, which is a big thing and must also demand your time. And then belonging to the Armenian community, it's lovely that you're part of all those things and how wonderful to have these different spheres of your life. But it's also, I suppose, adding to the demands on your time that you have to belong to them and serve them. It is. It is. I'm, I never want to complain. Nobody wants to hear a Nobel laureate complain. But it is true that I do have to say no to requests that are, you know, very important. Uh, I believe in the cause, but I'm having to say no a lot just because I still uh, very interested in the science that we do and want to continue it. So I'm trying to put in some structure so that I have my life and science life as undisrupted as possible. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to shun this or say, you know, so trying to find the middle ground where still do some of it, do the important things of what I think are important, and at the same time, continue life as if this didn't happen. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do, and it's going to evolve, because I've tried a few things, and honestly, without going into examples, some are, this was rewarding, this was this was something that was worth doing. Others were like, no, I don't think I'll do more of this kind of stuff. 
Uh, and again, I don't want to share what they are, but uh, I'm kind of starting to get an idea and, and really developing uh, the path forward of how this will work out. And I guess there are other Nobel laureates around and other people who've been very much in the spotlight who can give you advice as to... Absolutely. I've connected with many of them already. And Rod McKinnon is one that is a friend of mine and he won for Ion Channels a while back. And he is known in the community for being one that has absolutely insisted on his life not changing at all. So I think he does very little, if any, beyond his scientific work. And um, I do want to talk to him about getting some tips. But again, at the same time, I feel that I want to strike a, a balance between the two, not to be too disruptive, but at the same time, uh, it, it is an opportunity for me and my communities. As you said, the communities include scripts, you know, American research and immigrants, etc. Growing up in Beirut before the war must have been paradisical before that hit in 75. Um, yeah, so I was born in 1967, so I was eight years old when the war started. I have some memories before it, but as you can imagine, not too many. So most of my memories from Lebanon, unfortunately, are during the, the civil war. But I do remember um, it's a beautiful country. I remember you know, trips to the Mediterranean Sea, trips to the mountain. The food is excellent. I still love it and miss it and try to find it here in the U.S. And people are very warm. Uh, and it's it's hard to describe, but it's a, uh, the country has gone through a lot. But people are tenacious. They have survived. They're going through a very rough economic time now. But I'm hopeful that they will overcome this as well. So it was a bizarre combination of growing up in almost idyllic situation, at the same time, war-torn situation, where uh, for most of my childhood, going out at night was not okay. It was not safe. Curfews were abound. We had electricity six to eight hours a day. And you were, you know, looked forward to when the electricity came during prime time so you could watch TV, things like this that are embedded in my brain that most people don't experience. A lot of my homework was done with candlelight, Sounds romantic, but it's <laughs> probably contributed to the fact that my eyesight's not very good. So it's a it's a yeah bizarre combination of these memories. But thinking back, I'm very grateful for my bringing up in Lebanon because of education is very strongly emphasized by my family, community, and as a country overall. And so that's where I got my start in a way. And so. Mm. Um, and when I came to U.S., went to UCLA, I had lots of shocks, cultural shocks. But education-wise, I did not feel like I was uh, trying to make up. So that was that was a wonderful thing. On the other hand, I remember very clearly that for years after I came to U.S., I was rather scared of fireworks because uh, I was, you know, that association with bombs, etc. So it's just kind of, again, this very um, unusual combination of of these positive and negative valence memories. So. Quite. Um, why did your family decide not to leave when the war was going on and you were going through school? And it was obviously a very difficult place to be. Why did you stay? 
That's a good question. I think, you know, my parents grew up in Lebanon. That's what they knew. I think it's much easier for an 18-year-old to pick things up and move to a new country and starting with the education. So, you know, my father is 40 years older than me. So when I was, you know, 18, he was already, you know, late middle age. And so it was not easy. And he did it a few years later. And he had a great job at Middle East Airlines, which is the Lebanese uh, airline company as an accountant. And, you know, he had to take a step back and just find any job as an accountant here and which is not very stable. And so it was a difficult transition for sure. And doing it at that age is indeed very, very difficult. And there was a time where, you know, people were very proud of the lifestyle in Lebanon. And so when the war erupted, the optimists that most Lebanese are, including my parents, this will pass, this will pass. And so they hung in there as long as they could. So it was my brother and I that moved. And after that, they, I think, realized that, they should as well. Right. And you moved after doing one year at AUB, the American University of Beirut. What prompted your move? What made it happen? I mean, it was a growing idea that staying in in Lebanon kind of diminishes your, you know, unfortunately, possibilities for careers, etc. And it was actually one incident where I was held by militant militias while crossing the green line between East and West Beirut, which is the Christian and Muslim part of Beirut. Interestingly, I was going to a, a party um, with friends and I stayed over at a friend's house. And the next morning I was walking over to West Beirut where we lived and I heard snipers. And as I heard that, I ran across the green line and there were a bunch of guys with guns looking at this 18-year-old guy running across the border. Didn't look good. So they called me over and questioned me for a few hours. And um, it was a very scary time for me. And when they finally released me that day, I came home and I said, that's it, I'm out of here. So Hmm. my mom's relatives had moved to the United States decades ago. They had applied for a green card for us. And just about that time, we finally got approved. And so I just, like within literally weeks of that, decided to move and within a few months I was in Los Angeles. Well, as you say, it's a good time to move. It's a good age. The world's opening out for you. Did you hit the ground running when you arrived in LA? I was surprised how difficult it was, actually. Obviously, I missed my friends. I missed my family. But I had spoken English and taken lessons in English and TV was in English. So I thought I was very proficient in the language. But I literally couldn't understand anybody in Los Angeles. <laughs> the dialect, the, the accents, the, how fast they spoke was just uh, really difficult to adapt to. Everything was difficult. You know, when in Lebanon, most of the lights don't work as you drive. And so everybody at any intersection comes to almost a full stop, honks the horn and then proceeds. So to let go of these habits in Los Angeles where it's a green light and you're slowing down and honking before crossing the intersection caused some issues. It was a difficult time to adapt. And also, I came with just a few thousand dollars in the bank, so couldn't even afford to go back to school, even if I could qualify. And if you first move to California, you have to live there for a year to earn residency so that like public schools like UCLA would be at a fraction of the tuition that out-of-state students would pay. And so the decision was to work for a year, which I had never done before, 
and not as a part-time or anything. What did you do? I found some odd jobs. The first uh, was working at an Armenian newspaper. I- interestingly, they had an English section, and I was editing that section, which was bizarre because my English was not that good. I also wrote horoscopes for them, so all kinds of odd <laughs> jobs, as well as um, did some distribution. and So I did everything. It was a small newspaper. But I also delivered pizzas at night to make some extra few dollars. But yeah, so applying to a few schools in L.A. and getting into UCLA was definitely a huge turning point. The highlight, I remember being so happy when I got in because, you know, I appreciated how wonderful it is to be a college student instead of working. So I was was probably Yeah, probably not bad to have that experience just intercalated between studies just to make you a little bit more hungry when you get there. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we all take things for granted, whether it's uh, our jobs, our schools, our parents, our family. And the best thing to not take something for granted is to let go of a little bit. And then you realize how much something means to you. Um, So yeah, that year is when I, in a way, doubled down on education, realized what a wonderful opportunity it is to be able to go to school and learn and discover. So if anything, just increased my excitement for for going back to college. And you need to find these things out for yourself. You mentioned your son is 17, mine is 16. If it's all given to you on a plate and you don't have to struggle for it at all, sometimes you find yourself as a parent, at least I do, saying, you know, think of all the privilege you have. But those words don't count for much unless the person actually experiences it for themselves and suddenly sees with their own eyes how lucky they are. Absolutely. Telling your kids, don't waste food, there are kids in the world who are hungry, never seems to help. (laughs) Uh, And so you're absolutely right. We need to experience this ourselves. And that's a that's an interesting idea just to actively pursue that thought and make sure, you know, kids do experience things for themselves uh, and, and not have this privilege that is just given to them. It has its limitations and negative aspects of it, for sure. Finding yourself at UCLA, did you just take to the world of academia and research and study a, a, like a duck to water? Was it just... Um, made for you from the start? No, I mean, that's one of the more interesting things that I think back a lot. And I think back a lot from the perspective of, I feel now that I have found, quote unquote, the perfect career for myself to be a biologist, a scientist. And I think about it of how I came to this place. It seems so random, so twisted road that led me here. And we were talking about, you know, kids. And I tried to think about this new generation, Luca, my son, and others, about how to help people find what I have found. And I haven't come up with a great answer, but it's so important to to explore and to allow yourself to change your mind. So I got into UCLA as a pre-med chemistry major. And I was pre-med mainly because my parents wanted me to be, and which is the case for so many cases. They really wanted a doctor in the family, and my sister and brother were not interested, so all the hopes were, were put on me to do this. So as a pre-med, I was looking for ways to get my application to be good for medical school. And UCLA was a school with large classes, you know, 100 to 300 students, 
and you needed letters of recommendation from professors. And I was finding it very hard to get to know them enough for them to write me a letter. So I decided I should work in a laboratory just to know the professor so they can write a letter of recommendation. So it was a very selfish, serving medical school application kind of approach. And it was not easy, but I found the lab, Judy Leniel's lab, and literally I fell in love with doing research. And I don't know what it was about it. It just part of it was I used to really dislike lab courses, like classes that you would take. Just because they were so structured, you knew what answer you were going to get. And if you didn't, you had to go in a roundabout way explaining why the experiments didn't work. It was tedious. And then the work in a lab was completely the opposite, where the best thing was not to see if the experiment worked. The best thing was to come up with the experiment itself. (laughs) And this interaction with other students and postdocs, also I think being an you know, immigrant and then seeing that lab environment is full of people from all over the world. I think laboratories are full of people from very diverse cultural backgrounds compared to society in general. So that was a wonderful setting too. So for both personally, culturally, and the way science is done, I just completely fell in love with the idea of doing science and uh, slowly you know, stopped the idea that I should go to medical school and that I should go to graduate school. Leading to a difficult conversation with your parents, I imagine. But Yes, they were against it at first, but, you know, the job of the new generation is to, to take the helms themselves and do what they think they should do. But, you know, they raised me in a way that I was able to do that, so credit to them. How lucky for you to find that combination of circumstances in that lab and just to be hooked from the outset... It's often such a sort of tortuous path to find your way forward and just to land somewhere where and to be receptive to it and it all to work. It must have been absolutely heavenly to to experience that feeling of belonging. It was. And and again, I, I try very hard to extract how that happened to inform others. And again, thinking about my son and friends that are thinking through this now. I wonder if... Uh, AI or some future approaches will be a better way to match people with their careers. Uh, Because I think right now, there's no good way to do this. Um, Hmm. Because you could easily imagine, for example, someone like me saying, oh, lab courses of science are not good, therefore I will not enjoy being a scientist. That would not be a very outrageous conclusion to make. And yet it was the completely wrong conclusion to make for me if I had done that. And so, as you said earlier, to to bring that back, it's to experience things yourself is the only way to learn if something's right for you. And I guess Mm -hmm. that's the only lesson that can be learned is that expose yourself to as many experiences as you can. Professor Patapoutian speaks to Adam from his offices at Scripps Research in La Jolla, the picturesque resort town just north of San Diego. It's a sunny day in California, and the sky outside his window is blindingly blue. It was here at Scripps that he conducted groundbreaking research on the crucial mechanisms behind our sense of touch, how piezo ion channels in our cells' membranes detect and respond to mechanical pressure. But he didn't do it alone. Research on this level is most definitely a team effort. 
So when you see young people coming into your lab and some of them switch on and obviously take to it and others, I suppose, it's not perhaps the career for them or they don't quite adapt to it so much. Have you developed the ability to spot who's going to work and who isn't going to work at an early stage? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a little bit of romanticism in science still, I think. I find that the dreamers are usually the ones that make it. People who have very practical, like approach this as a job or don't have sometimes the the mentality. You kind of have to love doing this. It can't be very, very practical. You know, at the same time, I feel that the people in my lab who succeed in the long run are the ones that are very well read in science. So doing experiments, you know, being there's this term in biology, someone having good hands, meaning experiments work with them, is of course important. But to make a real impact in science, I think you need to have this dreamer kind of personality, but at the same time be widely read to, to know science, to know what's going on in your fields. Because everything you do is based on what's been done before. You're not sitting and coming up with completely novel ideas based on just your intuition. And so this combination, I think, is what seems to correlate with greatest <laughs> success from the very small number of people that I've trained. When I asked you unfairly, when we were talking just after you'd heard the news at 2am in the morning, what the secret of your success was in the lab, you gave a very lucid answer and you said, it's, I think it's asking big questions. Is that uh, also what dreamers do, widely read dreamers, do they think of the right question to address? Absolutely. Actually, as you were telling that story, I couldn't remember what I had answered. <laughs> that's, the, that's the 2 a.m. effect. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. You know, we were for 10 years when I started my lab, we were studying temperature activated channel thermosensation. And just about 2008, nine. I started looking at the field. There were so many more people who had come into the field studying it. And I felt that the field was starting to mature. And to me, you know, is this a big question anymore? Is this starting to become more into details of the field? And there's lots of, you know, introspection and, you know, trying to look at the field. And it was at this time where we said, well, you know, this related sense of mechanosensation, pressure sensing, as I said, related, but not only it's important for these few sensory neurons that sense temperature, it's actually important for so many other physiological factors, such as sensing blood pressure, hearing, touch, pain, etc. And none of the sensors are known. Why aren't we studying this? Yes, it's more difficult. There could be more possibility of failure, but this is the big unknown. And I think to have the, the courage and to come up with a plan of how to address this is a very important part of science because it's so easy when you're an expert in the field to keep doing it. It's still a very interesting, don't get me wrong. It's still science. It's still very cool questions. You're finding out things that were never found before. But this idea of how big of a question I can ask that given today's technologies can actually be answered is the hardest thing to do, I think, in biological, biomedical research. You can go overboard. 
you can ask questions that will not be able to be answered in the next five years. And so it's just that sweet spot, as they say, of difficult enough question, but one that has a chance to be answered in the next five years is, is the key, I think, to focus on. Mm, yes, there must be a great art in getting that right. Because, of course, yes, you have people like Francis Crick, who, um, having done great things, amazing things in one field, perhaps jump too far into the field of consciousness and find that the techniques, the understanding isn't there yet. Not to judge. I actually was thinking about Francis's example when I was saying that. But I also want to take a step back and say that by no means what he did was a failure, right? He actually is setting up the groundwork for, for this work to continue. And we will, I believe, at some point, get an answer to those questions. Francis Crick was awarded the prize in physiology or medicine in 1962 for his work in identifying the structure of DNA. He started out as a physicist before turning to chemistry and biology. Later in life, he embarked on the difficult quest to make scientific sense of human consciousness. Even now, 18 years after Crick's death, it's a mystery that remains largely unsolved. Some might consider this a failure, but not Ardem Pataputian. Collectively, science has to think of, I think, if you try, that's a good thing. That gives some progress. I don't think not answering a question should be looked at as a failure because it builds the groundwork, as I said, for others to continue. To, because if no one starts, then it's never going to be solved. And so I think that might be the great thing for a Nobel laureate to do because they don't need to succeed again. Having said that, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that's, that's a really interesting perspective because it also gives credit to those who don't succeed at all. So if we start with, with your move into the mechanosensors for pressure, did you have a strategy for if you just don't get anywhere with this, are you going to plow on or are you going to retreat and say, OK, that was just too difficult at this moment? I mean, did, did you think through that or was it just a kind of passion for the questioning? I think for me, this was something I was going to invest years and years in trying to find it. What I'm very careful about is, of course, when we say we are doing this, there are postdoctoral fellows in the lab who are actually doing the work. And right now, for example, I have a lab of three students and 12 postdocs. And if half of them are successful, my lab will be very successful. But I would never accept that formula because I don't want half my lab not to be successful. And so for them to move on in their careers to get the, uh, if they're a student, to get a postdoctoral position, or if they're a postdoc to get um, assistant professor or job in industry, they need to do something, publish, etc. And so the way I approach risky projects is to kind of divide them up. So if someone is taking on a new project, such as Bertrand Coast, the postdoc who found PSO, he was working on this for a year and a half. And after a year and a half, when we still hadn't found it, we actually came up with another project, safer project for him to do. And the idea was that if this didn't work, then that will work and he'll get something mm -hmm. out of it. And so spreading out the risk is, I think, the way to do it. To You're still taking on risk as a lab, but no one's career is being 
sacrificed. Another strategy that we've used on this is, again, three, four people who have their bread and butter projects also come together to try something risky. So long answer to your question is that as a lab, we were committed to doing this. But on an individual basis, you have to kind of realize that you cannot put all your eggs in one basket and that fails because then that would be very detrimental to the trainee's career. Hmm. A nice mixture of boldness and pragmatism. So you have those who approach very challenging, difficult new areas with a deal of success behind them. And then there are others who perhaps just try too early and just don't get anywhere. Just exploring this idea of the kind of pathfinders who don't succeed, so to speak, is there some way that within science they could be more recognised, that, that there's a sort of, I don't know, is it journals of negative results? Is it some kind of system that, that allows people to be a bit braver in what they do? Would that be good for science? I don't know. I think it'd be fantastic for science. We have to think about how to do it. But I absolutely believe in this. And I think it really has to come from an individual scientist perspective. Uh, look at collectively the progress that we're making. Look at the medicines against COVID and the vaccines. You know, it, for that to work, you probably needed 50 laboratories to try for two of them to work. And yes, the other 48 might look at this as a failure. But I wish that every scientist who does this realizes that the goal is the collective goal. And this is what it takes. For every success, there's going to be a few that did not succeed. It's easy to say this when you're the one who succeeded, I think, obviously. <laughs> but I do hope that people can look at problems like that because that's what matters at the end of the day. I think from what's gone before, I sort of feel I know how you might answer this, but the Nobel Prize creates these individuals who are extraordinarily good in general spokespeople for science or the other fields that the Nobel Prize represents. They champion the cause of that discipline and the approach throughout the world. And that in itself is an incredibly important thing to create. But how do you feel about this elevation of individuals as against the backdrop of this collective effort? It's a, it's a difficult one. And I'm actually honestly struggling a little bit to, to adjust to this. Because many scientists before the Nobel are, people treat them very differently in a way than, than afterwards. And it's so stark that one day afterwards, people start treating you differently. Honestly, I have to come out and say that there is too much emphasis put on Nobel laureates' opinions on, on everything. I just made a comment on Twitter today about there was a New Yorker article. Um, doesn't matter what it's about. But again, it keeps emphasizing that even if it's not within their field, anything a Nobel laureate says about society or science in general uh, has to be respected and taken seriously. And this is a bit too much, I think. And having just gone through not being a Nobel laureate to being a Nobel laureate, I know it's not true, but I, I just don't know what to do about it, really, other than highlight this, that as I'm writing this in my Nobel autobiography, that Nobel Prize could go to an ordinary scientist who's had done experiments who ended up giving extraordinary results to separate the individual from the work. But again, it's something I'm still adjusting to because it's still new and maybe I'll have more wisdom on it in a couple of years. <laughs> 
We often speak to people around the world who work in difficult circumstances. So for instance, in November, we had a nice project where we spoke to young scientists from 24 different countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. They shared their experiences of trying to do science in those countries. And in many cases, it's fine, but in many cases, it's extremely difficult. And from your standpoint, what would you advise young people who want to pursue science in countries where it's pretty much impossible probably to build a research career? Do they just have to say, I'll move from my country, as you did from Lebanon, and say, I'll make, a, I'll make my life somewhere else? Very difficult for me to say anything useful to this because it's an extremely difficult situation. In many cases, unfortunately, that is true, that leaving the country is the only way to pursue science at the level that they want to perform science. One thing that people consider is that that might not be a terrible thing to do, that going to another country and getting that education and you can come back and help the country that you came from be better at doing science or any other field. Obviously, I haven't done that, but I know many people who have. And that's a wonderful way of giving back. But of course, every situation is different and requires different ways of looking at it. So I'm going to visit back Armenia. And one of the things they want me to do is engage specifically in this question of how can, how can I potentially help think of how to advance Armenian science. One also has to be very practical on this. So for example, biomedical research is extremely expensive, what we do. You know, I have great funding from the National Institutes of Health, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Many, many countries could not afford to do this. But there are related fields, for example, in bioinformatics, we mentioned AI, where it might be more cost effective to invest in thing where all you need is an education and computers, not big labs, which spend lots of money. So I think strategic thinking of what areas of science to go into can be a very practical thing that could help in places where it's not very rich in science funding. And last question, really. Do you think that it's important that one does broaden the reach to pull in people from all over the world? I suppose from the perspective of coming in yourself, as so many do, as a slight outsider into, in your case, the California science system, and obviously having a, an effect there. I mean, obviously something you brought has advanced science tremendously. So how important is it to bring in outsiders, I suppose? I'm a big believer of outsiders. And outsiders can have many definitions. It could be cultural. It could be just within the field of science. I've changed what I've studied uh, again and again in my career. Started with fruit flies, then studied muscle and uh, model organisms such as mice, and then switched to sensory neurobiology. I remember when we got into the study of, of pain, for example, there's such an established field that does things very differently than from the you know, molecular biology, developmental biology, genetics that I came from. And so when you come to a new field, there's a little bit of clash of ideas of how to do things. But I think this is so important and necessary. And again, this could be a metaphor for not just scientific disciplines, but cultural approaches, how you think. You mentioned Francis Crick. Many of the Great biological discoveries of the last century were done from physicists turning into biologists. And so this outsider idea, I think, is, is such an important one. And it is to our 
benefit science to be very open to outsiders. And, and this includes, you know, gender, culture, all of these underrepresented in science. Not to be nice to them, but with the <laughs> strict idea that this is best for science is to bring different perspectives and opinions uh, and different approaches. And of course, working in, in the US, it's the great melting pot. And in particular, you've lived this California dream of science, going from UCLA to UCSF and Scripps. Do you think that you do a good enough job in the US at encompassing outsiders and bringing them in on board? Um, no, I think we do perhaps better than other places and we've done better than we used to. But there's clearly more room to improve. If you just take women in science, you know, there's in graduate programs, PhD programs, they all start as 50-50 male and female graduate students. By the time you get to tenured professors or National Academy members, the numbers are skewed just because I think there is lots of difficulties that women experience. You know, many organizations, including I'm very proud of what Howard Hughes Medical Institute has been trying to do, is trying to right this wrong. So I think the awareness that there's room for more to be done uh, at every level, including for racial underrepresented in science. So the idea that we're, we can do better is there and people are working on it. And it has to be done at two levels to make sure we promote the ones who are already in science. But I think as important, if not more important, is to make sure we recruit the next generation of individuals who might have been underrepresented in science. And I'm committed to help on both fronts. Well, if, if that next generation is listening to you talk, I think you're a pretty good advertisement for going into science. So. Thank you. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, great talking to you, Adam. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Ardem Patapoutian, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with Peace Prize laureate Lema Bowie, whose life was also deeply affected by civil war. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast. Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.